So we're turning now to God's Word, and we're, um, we're continuing on our whistle-stop tour of the New Testament, and we're, uh, we're in 1 Timothy. Um, we're reading from 1 Timothy chapter 4 uh, tonight, and uh, Timothy was, was like, Paul used to call Timothy his a spiritual child, so uh, Paul um, was like a mentor or a, a spiritual father to, to Timothy, uh, and we find um, Paul writing a couple of letters to Timothy, uh, and they're, they're really all around the truth of the gospel. Uh, and so they're, they're really helpful for us to look at because what Paul writes to Timothy is really applicable to every Christian. Uh, and so we're, we're looking tonight at the first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, and it's uh, page 1192 of the Church Bibles, uh, and it's 1 Timothy um, chapter 4, and we're reading the, the, the whole chapter. So Timothy, or Paul writes to Timothy, and he writes to us, in fact, this is God's word to us tonight. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings will come through hypocritical liars whose conscience have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labor and strive, that we have put our, our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Amen. Amen. So, does anybody know who this is? There's going to be a bit of a picture come up on the screen. Not this, but this. Does anybody know who this is? I don't suspect you do. Somebody, Robin, he's not just a pretty face. And there was a few others as well. Um, Blondin, Monsieur Blondin, Charles Blondin. Now, Charles Blondin was a 19th century, famous 19th century tightrope walker. Somebody thought it was me in my, in my swimsuit, but it was uh, Charles Blondin, the famous 19th century tightrope walker. And in 1860, he became the first man to walk uh, across a tightrope across the Niagara Falls. 
The line was stretched out over a quarter of a mile long, 160 feet above the falls, no safety net. People from America and Canada flocked to watch this event. And Blondin crossed the, the tightrope as people on both sides of it cheered him on. Uh, and when he got off the tightrope at the other side, he walked amongst the people and he asked, would you let me carry you back over to the other side? Well, needless to say, even amongst his own fans, there were no takers. No one would let him. You see, they didn't believe that Blondin could carry them across the tightrope, and so they didn't take up his offer. You see, what they believed governed what they did. What they believed shaped what they did. However, sometime later, one man, Harry Cocord, Harry Cocord stepped forward, and Harry Cocord was Blondin's manager. And he, Harry Cocord knew Blondin, and he believed that he could carry him across the tightrope over the Niagara Falls. And so Harry Cocord saddled up for what must surely have been the piggyback ride of his life across that tightrope, across the Niagara Falls. You see, what Harry Cocord believed shaped what he did as well. And we don't have to go too far to prove that what we believe affects how we live. We walk up to the zebra crossing, the oncoming car, if we believe it's going to stop, we step out. If we believe that it isn't, we don't. What we believe affects how we live. What we believe can be a matter of life and death, can even have eternal consequences. So it's, a great, it's of great importance what we believe, and it's of great importance that we know and believe the truth. And that's what Paul was getting at in his letter to Timothy. And that's why he exhorts him in 1 Timothy 4 verse 16, watch your life and doctrine closely. You see, the two are intertwined. Our doctrine, what we believe, and what we do, how we live, are intertwined. And I suppose we live in days when doctrine isn't really cool. You know, it doesn't seem to be the most exciting or, or important thing in the world, even to Christians. You know, we might think, sure, as long as we're nice people, throw a few quid in the plate, get a bit of a fuzzy feeling when we worship, sure, is that not enough? Is that not really all that matters? Well, no. No, at least according to our Father in heaven, according to him, doctrine matters. And so he commands us to watch it closely. Paul uses the word three times in this one short letter to Timothy. And each time he uses it, he's highlighting its importance and why we need to watch it closely. <clears throat> so let's start by asking, well, what is doctrine? The word translated doctrine, it means instruction or teaching and especially as it applies to lifestyle, to lifestyle application. In other words, Christian doctrine is authoritative biblical teaching which should shape the lives of those who hear it. The Bible says of itself in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is given, and this is the, the King James Version puts it like this, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We are to be careful about what we believe and present as truth. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, Paul says, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. What we believe can literally be a matter of life and death for both ourselves and our hearers, those people that we share the gospel with. 
You see, unfortunately, the Bible has not always been the foundation which people or churches build their doctrinal statements. Because of our sinful, fallen human nature, we we so often want to pick and choose parts of the Bible that we're comfortable with, don't we? You know, there's times when we really would like a loose-leaf Bible so we can open it and set those pages out and keep those pages in and and, and the ones we're comfortable with, the ones we want to, to read and want to hear. But that's not the way the Bible is. The Bible is full of truth from start to finish. Sometimes we're tempted to take verses out of, of context and, and rather than looking at the Bible as a whole sweep. And that's one of the beauties about, about the, the community Bible experience, isn't it? Reading through the whole Bible, reading the story. And that's where we want to get our doctrine from, not lifting one verse out and saying, here's the truth about, but taking the sweep of the whole Bible, looking at different verses, getting the truth from the whole of God's counsel. Sometimes we can be tempted to, to make a, have man-made tradition or religion or doctrine and we see all sorts of false religions and cults springing up today with doctrine that's, that's, that's man-made and, and, and not biblical. And this is nothing new. Nothing new in Mark 7. Jesus rebuked the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus himself in the first century. He rebuked them for teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. False doctrine was rampant in the first century and it's rampant in the 21st century. And the Bible tells us that it will continue to be a problem until the end of time. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, he writes, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. He said people will move from one person to another until they find someone who's saying what they want to hear rather than telling the truth. And I think those times are upon us. But the Bible gives a stern warning to those who would teach false or incomplete doctrine. 1 Timothy 6 says, If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching... He is conceited and understands nothing. Understands nothing, Paul says. Our doctrine is our worldview by which we live our lives. So it's important to get it right. Our doctrine shapes our lives. If it's based soundly on Scripture, we can know we are living as as God wants us to live. And our lives will be shaped and transformed by the gospel. However, if we, if we don't study the Word of God for ourselves, well, we're more easily led into error. God wants us to know His heart, to know His, His Word, to fall in love with His Word. And He has given us His Word in which we can build godly lives. And the more we study true biblical doctrine, and the more we understand God, the more we know God and ourselves. Paul commands Titus and Titus to you. Paul writes to Titus, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Such a mandate is obvious that doctrine is important, right? You see, in the Great Commission from Jesus, recorded in Matthew 28, Jesus commissions us to, to make disciples, to baptize and to teach them to obey everything that he has commanded us. And so as disciples making disciples, we must teach and obey what Christ has commanded us. That's exactly what we're commissioned to do. No more and no less. But if we wander from his teaching, then our focus shifts from Christ and salvation by grace through faith to something else. 
And our eternal destiny depends upon us hearing and responding to the teaching of Jesus. It's important, doctrine's important, because this teaching is entrusted to us by God, and we dare not tamper with His message to the world. Our duty is to live His message, to deliver His message, not to change His message. It's important because, as we've said, what we believe affects what we do. Our behavior is an extension of what we know and believe and understand. There is this direct correlation between how we think and how we act. It's important because we live in a world of falsehood. We live in a world of fake news, don't we? And so we must ascertain the truth because the truth will set us free. Paul writes in the very first verse of the passage that we read together, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars. Strong words from Paul the Apostle, but there were wolves among the flock. People teaching false doctrine. And the best way for us to distinguish the truth from falsehood is to know what the truth is. Because it brings life. It brings life both for ourselves and for our hearers. It brings life to us and to others. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's important too because we encourage one another by the truth. As Paul also writes to Titus, you must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. You see, there's no use either us having good sound doctrine if, we, if it doesn't affect our lives. Our theology should be a very practical thing, practically applicable and it should shape our lives. In the church, you see, right belief, orthodoxy, and right action, orthopraxis, should go hand in hand. The church has always known this. And that's why from the earliest of times, she has, she has sought to sum up and teach the fundamental truths of the Bible through creeds and confessions and, and catechisms. And I want to look at those a little bit tonight. If you would like to read a book that sets out clearly the importance of the important reasons for, for these creeds and confessions and catechisms, then I would recommend to you Carl Truman's The Creedal Imperative. I have a number of books in here that I want to recommend tonight, uh, folks, on, 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 on this issue of doctrine and truth and, and, and knowing the Bible and knowing God. Creedal Imperative, uh, Carl Truman. I'll leave these in the library. You might want to order up copies of different books. I don't know, but I'll leave these in the library afterwards, okay? And you can have a look at them. Now, the Bible alone, sola scriptura, that is all that we need for our salvation. When we accept the Bible as God's word, we have a solid foundation for our doctrine and for our lives. And it was great to have Robin and Richard and Trevor underlining again for us this morning the importance of God's Word in our lives, both individually and as a congregation, informing us, shaping us, transforming us, making us more like Jesus. Robin has a few of the little uh, look and acts, the story, uh, still available. So I think one or two people managed to get out past him this morning without a copy. 
So he has a few available still on the table. And it would be great, let me encourage you. I'm going to start into it as well. And it would be great for us to be reading the story together over the next six weeks. But we do not add to the Bible or replace the Bible. You see, we don't add to the Bible or replace the Bible with creeds or confessions or or catechism, but we learn and understand and apply the Bible with the help of these. Every point in the creed is drawn from Scripture. Every article in the confession has Scripture proofs. Every answer in the catechism has Scripture references. And some churches will say, some people might say, well, we have no creed but the Bible. But, But every denomination and every congregation has its beliefs. It's just about whether they're written down or not. And so ours are written down. You can check out what we believe very easily by picking up a creed, a Westminster Confession of Faith, or a copy of the Shorter Catechism. And when a Presbyterian elder or minister subscribes the Westminster Confession, when he or she signs it, they sign it as a subordinate standard. These do not add to or replace the Bible but they help us to understand the Bible. Let me illustrate it like this. We have our Bible. I have a diagram. I hope it's all, it's, it will work okay. But we have our Bible, but we know that our Bible is open to interpretation. And the Bible can be misinterpreted. So we have our creed, our confession, and our catechism. They give us a framework within which to interpret Scripture. There is room for interpretation as we go forward, but it happens within this biblical framework of orthodoxy. Inside this framework is biblical truth, sound doctrine. Anything outside this framework is false doctrine, is heresy. So our our, our creed and confession and catechism, they sum up the Christian faith and they give us a system of theology that captures the truth of the Bible. The truth that we are to watch closely as Paul bids us in our reading. So now we occasionally uh, say, or more commonly now sing the creed, and we'll be singing the creed later on in our service. The confession of faith you may not be so familiar with, and the catechism, well, you may be well aware of. These things, these documents, they may not be very trendy in our current climate, but I hope that we've positively established that their value and their necessity in protecting and teaching the truth of the Bible. And whatever your past experience of them, we need to know what we believe. And we mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You see, I I didn't grow up with these documents, but I have to say that as I've sought to get to know God better and to understand and live and teach His Word more faithfully, I have been increasingly drawn to these historical and timeless statements of biblical truth. So let us just look really briefly at each of these in turn. The Apostles' Creed. It's a brief summary of the main tenets of the Christian faith. The word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. You see, Jesus commissioned the early church to go and make disciples, to to baptize and to teach and to obey everything he taught. And so the early church recognized the advantage of a, a brief summary of the essentials. And this is it in the Apostles' Creed. This creed sums up the teaching of the apostles. They may or may not have written it themselves, but this faith, this creed sums up their teaching, the teaching they received directly from Jesus, the faith once delivered to the saints. 
And, and the creed was certainly written by uh, very close to the time of Jesus. And we believe that it was already in use by the second century AD. Twelve simple points of doctrine or articles of faith that are the foundation of true Christianity. The litmus test, the bottom line of orthodox Christian faith, if you like. If you'd like to explore this great historic unifying creed of the, of the church in a bit more detail, then let me recommend Alistair McGrath. He's a, a theologian from Northern Ireland, I believe, exploring the Apostles' Creed. It's in here. As a mainstream denomination, Christian denomination, we also subscribe to the Nicene and Athanasian creeds, but these are very similar to the Apostles' Creed doctrinally. And then we have, so we have our creeds and we have our confession, Westminster Confession of Faith, written at the time of the Reformation to, to try to separate out the true biblical doctrine from hundreds of years of man-made tradition that had grown up around the, the teaching of the medieval Roman Catholic Church. It was drawn up by the Westminster Assembly. These were a group of Protestant theologians who met at Westminster Abbey from 1643 to 1653. It's a more major piece of work than the creed, and the confession is actually, I guess, more of a mini-systematic theology. Its 33 articles cover all the aspects of the creed, but also gives us a greater body of teaching around these various aspects. It is the theology of Presbyterian and Reformed churches around the world today. Again, if you want to uh, explore the theology of the Westminster Confession uh, a little bit more detail, you might look at, uh, start with something like Donald MacLeod's book, A Faith to Live By, coincidentally. A Faith to Live By. This, this helps us to watch our doctrine. We have our creed, our confession, and finally our, our catechism. In length, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it falls somewhere between the, the creed and the confession. It was written at the same time as the Confession of Faith and the, the Longer Catechism. Uh, and these three documents together are collectively known as the Westminster Standards. And so it's to this, I think, very helpful little book that I'd like now to, to turn a friend of mine, um, Andrew Conway, is a minister in Hilltown and Clonduff churches. It's, yes, it's another Clonduff. Hilltown and Clonduff, he's a minister there. He produced this little shorter catechism made simple uh, recently. And as I've been working on this talk for this evening, I have to say this wee, wee book has really been growing on me. There's, there's a lot in here. I'd like to encourage you to get a hold of it. And, and in my opinion, it really deserves to be on every believer's bookshelf. You see, the Catechism uses a simple question and answer format, and it gives us some simple yet wonderfully scriptural answers to some of our biggest questions. Alpha publicity often asks God questions, and the Alpha course will help us to answer some of our questions, but so will the shorter Catechism. For instance, why are we here? Why are we here? Well, check out the first question and answer in the catechism, probably the best known one. What is the supreme purpose of humanity? The supreme purpose of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Wow! I've always loved that answer. What a great aim to have in life, to be glorifying and enjoying God in all that we think and say and do. That would be a life well lived, wouldn't it? Forever. What an epitaph, you know, if it was on your gravestone there, your name, and 
He glorified and enjoyed the Lord. I would have to say, he glorifies and enjoys the Lord. Because it's forever. The Catechism first published in 1647 by Protestant church leaders as a system whereby the ordinary people could learn the basics of biblical Christianity at a time when there was much false teaching around. The Catechism helps us to take, it, 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 avoids to, it helps us to avoid lifting verses from Scripture out of context and coming up with dodgy theology. It draws its answers from a number of Bible passages right across the Old and New Testaments from the whole counsel of God. Used and understood properly, the catechism gives us a good sound system by which we can watch our lives and doctrine carefully. It helps us to understand the great biblical truths and to inform and guide and inspire and challenge us in how we live our lives. Using 107 questions and answers, the catechism helps us to look at our doctrine and allow that doctrine to sink in and to shape our lives. You see, We all have a set of beliefs about God. Everybody out there has a set of beliefs about God and ourselves and and the world. Even people who never read the Bible or come to church, everyone has their beliefs about these big things. That's their own doctrine. That means the question isn't about whether we will have doctrine or not, but whether we have doctrine that is true or doctrine that is false. And that's where our creed and our confession and catechism come into play. Just as I finish, the creed, confession, and catechism, they don't replace the Bible. We don't abandon the Bible to study them. We study the Bible using them. As Andrew Conway says in his little book, he says, whatever your reason for reading this may be, I hope you'll find the shorter catechism made simple, a helpful guide to the only faultless book, the Bible. At Orangefield, we read our Bibles. We read our Bibles. So as we read our Bibles, either in our small groups or in our community Bible studies or in our own uh, personal quiet times, let me encourage you to have to hand alongside your Bible access to a creed or confession or the catechism. Not to replace our Bibles, but to help us to better understand our Bibles so that we too can watch our life and doctrine closely and so that we can better glorify and enjoy the Lord in all that we think and say and do forever. Shall we pray together for a moment? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the privilege of studying it that is ours. And we thank you for those who have gone before us, who have left us a system of doctrine to help us to know and understand and live out the great truths of the Bible. Father, we ask that you would please help us to watch our lives and doctrine carefully. Help us to have a faith to live by as we study your word together at Sunday worship, in our small groups, at community Bible experience, and in our own personal quiet times. And in all that we do, may we seek to live lives that glorify and enjoy you in the power of the Spirit, and in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.